I am at times conflicted with the condition of the church in America and at times just super excited. I love the brothers in the Lord that uh, I've had a privilege of linking arms with, but there is something that is going on in the American church and I, I want to address that this morning. I want to be, I want to be sensitive about it. But I want us to talk, I want to talk about it, and it has to do with our desire to evangelize and reach the lost. Let me just begin by sharing this with you. There is a huge difference, if you're not aware of, between the, what's called the Gnostic Gospels and the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gnostic Gospels were written about a hundred or so years to two hundred years after Christ, and they are filled with legendary type of stuff. Now, some of them may have actual quotes of Jesus, but for the most part, they're very legendary. If you were to read one of the Gnostic Gospels, you would almost immediately recognize it. Regardless of what Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code said, what he wrote that book over 15 years ago, declared that it was historical fiction, and yet there was so little historical accuracy in what he said, it was appalling. Many Christians wrote books on the topic. We tackled it. Yeah, this was like 15 plus years ago. But he really focused on the Gnostic Gospels and believed that Jesus was married, had a kid, and blah, 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 went the conspiracy theory. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church covered all of this up. Well, there's absolutely no truth to that whatsoever, but he relied on the Gnostic Gospels for some of what he wanted to share, to talk about in his, his book. For example, the, the difference between the miracles in the Gnostic Gospels and the miracles in the four canonical Gospels is, is this. Let me share with you from the infancy of the Gospel of Thomas. This is a Gospel that focuses on Jesus before he was 12 years old, and he does many miracles. He's tried to, teachers try to teach him and he rebuffs them as if they're stupid. He actually kills people and then raises them from the dead on one particular occasion. And some of those people are little kids that he kills. Yes. And in one particular miracle, he creates doves out of clay and then releases them into the air and they become real doves. Now, these are the types of miracles that happen. In the Gospel of Peter, we, f we find in, in the end of the Gospel, the tombstone is rolled away, and out comes first an angel, a huge angel. Then Jesus comes out, and when he stands up, his head goes through the clouds, and then behind Jesus is a talking cross. And, and this is the stuff of Gnostic Gospels. The, the stuff of the Gnostic, the miracles of the Gnostic Gospels, most of the time, many of the times, tends to be very wow-oriented. Like, isn't that cool? Isn't that just amazing? And when you, but when you look at the miracles in the canonical Gospels, they always have a purpose to meet the needs of the people, and they always come from the compassion of Jesus Christ. Jesus never does a miracle for himself. Actually, if you were to go back to the very beginning, the inauguration of Jesus's ministry, 
before he does any miracles, he is 40 days in the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. And then Matthew and Luke recount three specific temptations. And for both the first mirror, the first temptation that Satan gives him is, since Jesus is hungry, Jesus, take these stones and turn them into bread so you can eat them. But you see, the very focus of Jesus' miracles are always, and there is no exception to this, to minister to other people's needs and never to himself. And so when Jesus then ministers in these miracles, he's immediately tempted Hey, what is your ministry going to be all about anyway? And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he actually quoted scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is true life. Words of truth spoken by God himself. So the miracles in the Gnostic Gospels, the miracles in the four canonical, very different. And their purpose is to meet needs. Now, where am I going with this? This idea of miracles for show or entertainment is the stuff that is kind of going on in our day to day. Now, I don't know what you will, uh, what your take is on that Bible that leaked oil or not. I have my concerns about that because after a couple of years, apparently there was some sort of conspiracy that was involved in it. Um, many people got oil from this Bible that was, they actually put this Bible in a, a, a big container and it would just leak oil into the container. Okay. A lot of, they would travel. This guy that it was his personal Bible, he was an older gentleman and an evangelist. And, and I'm not going to uh, knock their ministry and, and the gospel that they were preaching, but I have to step back and say, what truly became center stage? When we see statues that are weeping, and this is generally from the Roman Catholic Church, but even the Roman Catholic Church many times will deny these types of miracles, but they do accept many of them. I have to step back and say, what is the significance of a statue that's crying and the tears coming down and actually forming specific shapes or a piece of bread that is toasted, and when it comes out, it's in the form of the Virgin Mary. Um, and, and who even knows what the Virgin Mary looks like anyway, right? And, and, but it, it's this type of stuff that so mirrors the Gnostic Gospels, and if the church isn't careful, it kind of brings some of this entertainment value into the church that we need to be so careful of. Now, I, I do want to say I am not opposed to things that are entertaining. But when, but when uh, entertainment becomes the focus and so much of the effort of the church is poured into this, I have to step back and I have to wonder, what is the purpose of all of this? What is it that actually attracts the sinner, the lost, the world out there to Jesus Christ? Now, there's going to be a few things that maybe you're going to learn this morning that you didn't know before. And it's just because in America, we do church in a certain way. And when you really look at the New Testament, you have to step back and say, is that really the way the New Testament prioritizes this? And so I'm just going to confess to you right up front, I struggle with this. I don't preach against entertaining 
messages and such. But when things begin to focus on that, on things that are entertainment, and I'll just say that they are entertainment, things that are entertaining become entertainment, I have to step back and say, I'm not sure that is the focus that we need to be having as a church. This is commonly done by the attractional model. They do, they do get around to the gospel generally or to a biblical principle in the sermons, but I have to ask, is that the hook that we are supposed to use to win the lost? Entertainment. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. And you're going to find that I am not going to come down hard on any one particular position. This is not a black and white issue. This is a gray issue, if you will. This is, this is a continuum, if you will. Where, at what point, do you say, wait, it's becoming too much of a focus? Okay? In Acts chapter 8, persecution has taken place. And I mentioned this last week because I was preaching on Acts 11. But because of the persecution of Saul, it says here in verse 4, they began to scatter. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all played close attention to what he said. And I want you to underline that word, highlight it, put a box around that word, said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Underline that great joy in the city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. Maybe this is why he needed to cast demons out of people, right, church? Anyway, <coughs> anyway, this is how the people responded. <clears throat> he boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and, and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them, amazed them for a long time with his magic or his sorcery. But when they believed, excuse me, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. Did he truly believe? There's a lot of argument in that. It does not appear that he did, but regardless, it moves on and says, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Let's just see something here. In the miracles that Philip did, it says that it drew people to focus on what he said. And what did Peter, excuse me, what did Philip say? He preached the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. The whole focus wasn't on Philip. Many times in entertainment by skilled people, the focus is on them, maybe how funny they are or the, whatever they're doing, you know, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to even use examples because you're immediately going to think, well, that must be wrong. And, and again, fine line, right? But it tends to draw the attention to themselves rather than to Jesus. Philip, when he did miracles, I tell you what, people were like, wow, this is amazing. But they did not look to Philip. They looked 
to Jesus because he was preaching Jesus. Jesus was not a footnote in what he came to do. What he preached, it was everything about Jesus. From very beginning to the end, it was in the name of Jesus that the demons were cast out, that people were healed, that those who were crippled could actually walk again. And it says that the, that, that the whole city experienced great joy. People were healed. People were freed from the power of Satan. This is the focus of what Philip is doing and preaching. It is about Jesus, and it is about people being changed because of what he's doing and saying. How about Simon? See, Simon, he amazed the people. As a matter of fact, when he started following Philip, he was amazed by what Philip did. I have a problem with this. Is is that it? You're just amazed? The people are just amazed? It's just, wow. People became more in bondage by following him, listening to him. And of course, he pointed people to himself. If you were to go on to chapter 8, verses 18 and 19, let me read them to you. When Simon saw, because John and Peter come down from Jerusalem, they lay hands on people, they receive the Spirit, and Simon saw, so obviously the Spirit manifested in some way, but Simon saw that by the laying on of hands, they had received the Spirit. Again, he's like wowed by this. So in verse 18, it says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to read what Peter says, but Peter just sees right in between these words and what he, the implications of what's really in Simon's heart. And what's in Simon's heart is this desire to keep drawing people to himself. But he kind of couches it in religious words. When I lay my hands on people, they'll receive the Holy Spirit too. Well, they'll be wowed by what, he'll lay hands on them. Isn't that awesome? Isn't he great? And I'm just going to say, whenever we do anything to present the gospel in a service or outreach of any kind, and people are, wow, that is so cool, and it turns their focus away from the central focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe we've crossed a line. We must point people, constantly point people to Jesus Christ. I'm not saying, we can be creative in doing this, but when we start using man's methods and our abilities to create and entertain, be careful, okay? What we see here is nothing short of the miraculous power of God. Now, now let me just say that I I truly believe that the greatest miracle is the resur- apart from the resurrection of Jesus, bodily resurrection of Jesus, is the resurrection of the sinner from death to life. That is the greatest miracle. That is what this is all about. Now, I, 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 am, I am so grateful when Jesus, for example, walked up to the woman's, the, the widow whose son had died, and he, he spoke 
and the man sat upright and was raised from the dead. What an amazing miracle because now this woman can look to her son to continue to provide because as a widow, she would have nothing. And Jesus met this widow's need. And it says in that passage that he had compassion on her. He understood the, the depth of her need. And so he did this miracle. Not so the people would say, wow, isn't that cool? What was cool, church, was that Jesus met a woman's need. And they realized this truly is the Son of God. Magic or entertainment, the wow factor, does not meet needs, nor does it tend to point people to Jesus. When we look at Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, the, the, the church's birth, what do they focus on? They do what comes to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. Immediately, the next verse, it talks about the apostles doing miracles. Then it talks about having sharing with one another and having all things in common. We get this word koinonia from this. Fellowship, this sharing of the, what they have in common and, and surrendering their, what their possessions to meet the needs of others. Then it talks about worship and how people gathered not only in the temple courts, but in homes. And they, be, they were worshiping God. And it says that the people, that is, the Israelites who were non-believers, or, or let me word it this way, that the believers found favor in the eyes of the non-believers, who, by the way, had crucified Christ just a few months ago, and people were added to the church daily. Being saved, I mean. This is the, this is the substance. This is the baited hook, if you will. I, I don't see this focus on entertainment here. I truly don't. And, and so I would say that the church looked at Jesus' miracles, meeting needs, they pointed people to him because he is the only giver of life. That is what those miracles did. That is what the church did in all of their focus, pointing people to Jesus. So point number one that I, I want to share with you is entertainment does not meet needs, nor does it tend to point people to Jesus. Number two, entertainment tends to be passive. It, it is a come and see approach to evangelism. Whereas we don't get that in the New Testament. Instead, what we get, for example, in Luke 15, and, and you're familiar with this passage, it would be the parable of the, the lost sheep. Let me just read that to you, seven verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear him, that is Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So let me just pause right there. Why are the people gathering around Jesus? Is he doing magic tricks? No, no, he's not. Is he telling jokes? No, he's not. I'm not opposed to either of those two things. But people are gathering to Jesus in this moment because of what he is speaking to them. Okay. He is sharing the good news because it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but it is the sick, and the tax collectors and the sinners were sick. And Jesus wanted to minister healing. Now, it, here, he is not physically healing, though I'm sure in other, time, at other moments he did, but he is speaking truth, and that truth is healing. So 
he moves on. He tells them this parable. Because this is the, how do we deal with a lost world? Jesus is saying that he is, he's speaking to them and they're gathered around him to listen to what he has to say. He's speaking truth, truth. That's his focus. So he goes on, he shares a parable. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and, uh, and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, much more could be preached on this, and I am just simply saying Jesus had a go mentality. He had a go charge to his disciples. That was what Jesus' ministry was about. Now, I'm going to tread carefully here because what I see in the scriptures is not so much people saying, hey, come to the meeting, come to our Saturday night service, though I'm not opposed to you inviting people. But Jesus always kind of turned that around. He says, no, go to them. Speak truth to them. Because if we don't do that, if all we're doing is inviting people, you leave it up to me to win the lost. And guess what? I, I, I love doing that, and I love preaching truth. But see, I want you involved in that. I want you to be sharing that. And it can be so simple, church. It truly can be. Sharing the gospel can be so simple. Calling them to repentance and when they repent, that they it says the angels in heaven are rejoicing. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 16? He said to them right before his ascension, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. So it is this go forces thrust in his preaching and not a, hey, just go out there and invite them. Though he's not opposed to us inviting, but he does focus on the going. Now, do you see this? Now, I, I want you, every single one of you who is born again, you have what's called a testimony. That testimony is powerful. <laughs> we overcame the devil, it says, by the blood of the lamb and by what else? The word of our testimony. That is the redemption of Jesus Christ secured for us by the cross and his resurrection applied to like me, Mike Curtis. That's my testimony. That has power. That overcomes the enemy because it's truth and it's the truth of the gospel, like in a nutshell, and it's very personal, it's experiential, but it is truth nevertheless. Every single one of you who is born again, who trusts in Jesus Christ, and you have eternal life, you have a testimony. You can share your testimony in one to two minutes. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to read a book on it. Though I'm, I'm, I think that's great to read a book to kind of help you sharpen it. Because some of you can share a 10-minute testimony and be able to share it concisely and well, and, and that's great. 
But many people can't. They're just not skilled in that kind of communication. But everyone can share their personal experience with Jesus Christ. Three things, real quick. Three things, real quick, in your testimony. And you can see Paul's testimony, actually three times in the book of Acts. Testimonies are important. Number one, you talk about your lostness. You don't have to talk about how many times you got drunk or had sex with a a man or a woman before marriage and, and all of those lurid details. But you can talk about how lost you were and how empty you were or how you thought you really had it together, your arrogance, whatever it was, you can talk about your lostness so people realize something is wrong in your heart because they're going to connect with that because they're lost too. Secondly, what happened when you met Christ? What elements of the gospel. And if you want to share all aspects of the gospel, and basically there's about four points to the gospel, but regardless, what truths really stuck out to you and touched you? So you're just sharing the gospel in a nutshell, like 30 seconds long. You can do it in in like 30 seconds. Maybe it was the forgiveness of God. Maybe it was, for me, it was understanding what Believing in Jesus truly, because I was born and raised in a Christian home. And then thirdly, so what has Jesus done in your life? And just focus on like one thing. How has this gospel affected you? How do you live now? How has it affected, how has it changed you? So my testimony in less than two minutes. I was born and raised in a Christian home. I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was eight, 10, 12, and finally when I was 14, I guess it finally stuck. But the truth is, I was, I was listening to the truth of the gospel and my need for Christ all my life without really getting it. Until one day, my brother, three and a half years older than me, gave me a little tract, am I going to heaven, find out inside. And there were, get a load of this, 17 options. I, was a, I thought I was a good little Christian, so I checked all 17 boxes. Of course, the last box was other. I figured, got that base all covered. You know, e- even things like holy unction, I'd received holy unction. I had no idea, church, what holy unction was, but I checked the box, right? So I began to read, though, and the, it began to explain that it's not by works, which is what all 17 boxes were about, by the way, but it was only by the grace of God. And then my brother began to talk to me about faith. And that's when it clicked. And I said, you know what? In my spirit, I need to trust in Jesus Christ. Not toe dip. I need to jump in. I need to trust him fully and surrender to him. And I did. And God began to change my life. I began to read the Bible. And it was like, wow, this is exciting to me. I used to fall asleep when my mom would read the Bible to me, right? And there was something about reading the Bible. And praying. And I remember after a few years, when I would pray for my lost uh, schoolmates, I, I would weep for them. I truly wanted them to experience what I had. Jesus Christ truly changed my life. I think I did that in less than two minutes. Your testimony has power. And the focus, of course, is not about you, but it is about Jesus, your rescuer. The third thing that I want us to see here 
is that entertainment tends to steal the show. It tends to displace and overshadow truth as the focus. So truth generally tends to take a back seat. In Luke 14, 23, I'm just going to say this. That's the parable Jesus shares. Hey, go into the highways and the byways. Go into the, the alleys and, you know, those little streets where the dump trucks go to pick up garbage. Go down those roads and look for people. And he says, compel people to come in. And it's a parable about the kingdom of God. Compel them to come into the kingdom. It's not through magic tricks. It's not through sleight of hand, you know, card tricks. I love card tricks, by the way. My son loves card tricks, by the way. But and and it's not through entertainment. That's not the baited hook. It is urging them with your testimony, with the truth that changed you. See, this is something that all of us can do, truly. And I'm going to encourage you, church, this coming week, pray, seriously pray for one opportunity to share your testimony with someone. Just this week, just every day, if you can remember, pray, God, give me an opportunity today. Maybe it's my next door neighbor. It's not going to be your cat or dog, by the way. Okay, that doesn't count. But another human being who needs Jesus, or maybe halfway through the, the, your testimony, they say, wow, that happened, it happened to me too. Okay, that's all right. Okay, so you started evangelizing someone who's already a Christian. That's cool. But sh- pray and just ask God for one opportunity this week, okay? Because again, what does Jesus say? Go to them and compel them to come into the king. Not compel them to come to a, a worship service. And again, I'm not opposed to that. I'm going to come to a passage about that in just a moment. But he says, go to them and compel them to come into the kingdom. The kingdom. That only happens by speaking truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, the fact that he came to rescue me, a lost sinner who was in rebellion against him. I mean, when I was 14, I didn't feel like I was in rebellion against God. I didn't feel like I was his enemy. But the scripture says I was. And he came and he rescued me that day. And I just said, okay, I'm surrendering all, my whole heart to you, Jesus. Truth that day took center stage, nothing else. Lastly, God's grace is that which attracts both believers and unbelievers to Jesus. Nothing else in Scripture I mean, we might use our methodology to attract, but it is the gospel, it is a changed life. It is the grace of God displayed in miracles or displayed in truth, speaking to people's hearts. It is the grace of God that is on display, that people are attracted to and drawn to. It's not how cool, it's not how much smoke comes out or how cool the lead guitar lick is. It is about Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Now, I want to quickly share with you two passages. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. Before I read any further, let me just say the first 11 verses talk about Ananias and Sapphira claiming to be Christians, but they lied to the Holy Spirit and God took their lives that day. Wow. 
God is just. He has a right to do that. But they were pretending to be Christians. And their heart was truly revealed. And at least Peter could see the wickedness that was truly in their hearts. And he called them out on it. But they were struck dead that day. And it says in verse 11, let me just read that to you. It says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. That includes unbelievers. So now let me continue. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else, that is, other than the believers meeting there. That would include unbelievers. No one else. That includes unbelievers. No one else dared join them, even though they, the the believers, were highly regarded by the people. Listen to this. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. How did they get saved? If they didn't come to a worship service, how did they get saved? If there was no altar call, how did they respond to the gospel? Nevertheless, it says, excuse me, uh, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least, listen to this, church, Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Wow, so that they would be like wowed, so they could write in their diary, I saw someone get healed today? No, because so, Peter's shadow fell on them and they were healed, or at least on someone they loved, and it touched them, it broke them. As a result, um, Peter fell, fell on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. How did people, how did unbelievers come to Christ? They didn't come to a service and get saved. The church went. That's how it happened. They listened to, they remembered Jesus saying, go and preach, go and minister, share your testimony, go do it. Takes a bit of boldness at times, bringing up the subject. It can be as awkward as asking, say, are you saved? That's a little bit awkward. Not everybody under is saved. Saved from what? From the train that almost hit me at the intersection there? Yes, I was. Well, actually, no, from your sin. But however you want to do it, share what Jesus has done in your life. Your testimony. So people were getting saved, and they weren't getting saved here. They weren't getting saved in the service. No, I'm not done yet, and I have one more passage to look at. And some of you may may know right now what passage I'm turning to, and it's 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25. And this is in a worship service. This is the church gathered together. And I'm going to say, if we're going to look at methodology, most people in the first century church, from what we read about, did not get saved in a service. Because that is too passive. And it's just maybe people inviting. And and again, that's okay. And we have an example of it here. So it does happen. But generally speaking, people were going. People were sharing Christ. People were getting saved outside of the service. And now they want to come. And let me tell you this. When that happens, 
Your worship service doesn't have to be a seeker-focused service. It is about focusing on building up the body of Christ and feeding them and worshiping them radically. And, And can I just say this, that when unbelievers see that type of extravagant worship, believe it or not, they're actually drawn to it. They're not offended, but I, I mean, maybe some of them are. I, they've not talked to, uh, to, to me about that. A- any unbelievers that I've talked about that have gone to a service in which they've tr- people have really worshipped God with all of their hearts, what they see is, wow, those people are really serious. Wow, yeah, because that's what faith is about, right? They see believers truly worshipping God. And it's not about how great the music is. I think we have an awesome band, by the way. But you know what? That's What people are really drawn to is what they're singing about, and it's about Jesus, right? And so that, when people are drawn to that, yeah, there we go. It's about Jesus. So here's the, here's the passage, 1 Corinthians 4. I, I, I rambled a little bit there. I hope I concluded my thought before I'm going to read this. Here it is, verse 24. But if any unbeliever or someone who does not understand, an inquirer, that is, comes in, that is, to your gathering of believers, while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And I'm going to explain that. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will, listen to this, fall down, and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What just happened there? Let me just say this, that it is not someone coming up to an unbeliever with a prophetic word and speaking publicly, I see that you're an adulterer and need to repent. That is not what's happening here. As a matter of fact, there is not one single example of that in the entire Bible. Wow. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, Mike, what about Jesus and the Samaritan woman calling her out? Guess what? Was that public, church? That was very private. It was just Jesus and the woman. Okay? So I'm going to give that one to Jesus. And he called her out on it. And she was open. She wasn't embarrassed. Yeah, you do that in a worship service, they're going to be embarrassed. What's that about? There's no need for that. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here, and it says everybody is prophesying. Church, wow, I'd love to just preach on that one right there. But you know what? Everybody is, prophecy is simply the Spirit of God speaking through you to others. It's not a sermon, though I hope at times a preacher during his sermon will prophesy and that the Lord will speak directly to him such that when you are done, have you ever said, Listen to someone preaching and they said, oh my goodness, how did he know that about me? Right? Well, that's what's happening here. Because the Spirit of God is speaking through many people and just sharing truths, giving, speaking words. And, and prophecy isn't just about foretelling, church. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say in this, it's exercise in the church that is far less happening than foretelling. Just speaking encouragement, comfort, truths that build up the body of Christ. That generally is the focus when we're talking about prophesying. Of course, foretelling is a part, 
But I think sometimes in, in our culture, in, in, you know, especially with the charismatic background, we tend to think, well, prophecy is about telling the future. It's so much more than that. And so what's happening is a lot of forth telling, a lot of speaking truth by the Spirit, spot on truth. And what happens is this person is being convicted of his sin and they're, they're speaking directly to him, not specifically to him, but as they're sharing, he's coming under the conviction of the Spirit and he, re, he recognizes God is in this place. And, and maybe someone does come up to him. And I've seen this happen. And they share a very personal word with them. And it's like, whoa, how did you know that? And it's not a lot about all the sin that they're involved in. Maybe it's a need. Maybe it's how they're running from God. And see, I've seen that happen. But this person is in a believer's worship service. The service is not tailored to unbelievers, in which case you probably just have three songs, do a lead guitar lick, some other things, 20 to 30 minute sermon, not too long, make sure of that, because you don't want to lose the unbeliever's attention. But when Jesus is on display, when he's high and lifted up, and we're extravagantly worshiping him, and we're proclaiming his goodness and his grace, his grace is on display, and that's what we see here. An unbeliever, an inquirer comes and he is impacted by the grace of God and he says, surely, of a fact, of a certainty, God is here. I didn't believe in him before, but I, know, I do now. Something happened. Maybe it was a testimony before a baptism, but they were just impacted by this and the Spirit of God used someone or many people, everyone prophesying, and spoke directly to his heart. That is what, I'm going to encourage you, pray that that happens regularly in our church, okay? But what I want to see even more so, church, is us going, is, uh, is us saying, hey, do you know Jesus? Or just going to someone who's going through a really hard time, lost a loved one, maybe lost their job. And you just go and you share Jesus with them. And God's going to open up those opportunities. This week I'm going to be going to see my new friend, Tony. He lives just around the corner now in my cul-de-sac. And um, I want to talk to him about Jesus. He may know Jesus already, but I'm, to, I'm going to talk to him about Jesus. I'm going to share my testimony with him if I can. And uh, I want you to as well. Maybe not with Tony, you know what I mean. Just with, with, your, with your co-workers. You're, you're praying for them. And then you're just maybe sometimes just asking a really simple question or two. And then you just say, hey, can you just give me two minutes and I want to share with you the most incredible thing that ever happened in my life. The most incredible thing that ever happened in my life. Are you ready? And you have two minutes and you share your testimony with them. And at the end you say, yeah, Jesus changed me. That's how good he is. And you just leave it. You've planted a seed. And maybe they say, wow, what can I do to be saved? That's what the Philippian jailer asked. What must I do to be saved? 
I'm going to close in prayer. And then we're going to have, have communion. Maybe someone can go out and get the kids and have them come in. But church, God's grace needs to be on display in this generation. It's not about how slick or cool we do things. It is about God's grace. It's about God, about God changing us, about God using us, and not in our own power. Yet using some of our abilities, yes, but using his grace, just pouring his grace through us. You're in a really good place, by the way, if you're about to take an opportunity to share the gospel or pray for someone, you're just, what do I say? You feel really inadequate. As a pastor, I still feel that way many times, inadequate. What do I say? What do, you're in a perfect place because when you're weak, then he is strong. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Let's humble ourselves before him, Lord. Okay, church. Father, I want to thank you that your grace is more than enough. Father, I want to thank you that as inadequate and unable as we are, your grace is more than able. And so right now, we are appealing, God, to your grace to just be poured out upon and through this vessel, me, each of us. That, Father, if we're not saved today, that you would save us. If we've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ and surrendered to him, that we would. But, that, Father, if we have, that we would say, God, please use me to just speak a word of hope or encouragement, my testimony to an unbeliever this week. I pray that for every single one of us, God, that we would be fervent in asking you for coming before your throne every day. Knock, 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 just every day. And I'm just asking you, Lord God, pour out your grace and use us in some simple way. Would you do that, God? We want to go and make disciples. Help us do that, God. We want to go and look for that one lost sheep. Would you help us, Lord God? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.